So I'm going to talk about a very exciting subject that's called dealing with strife. I thought you'd be excited. <clears throat> so let's put up uh, Galatians, and thankfully we've got our, hallelujah, we've got our overhead fixed now. Sorry about that during praise and worship, but um, we, there was a lot of words in that song I would have liked to have had in front of me, but... Uh, <laughs> But we remembered parts of it, so, and it was a good song. <coughs> so this is, our, this is our base scripture for the whole law. Concerning human relationships is complied with in one precept. You shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. You know, I, I don't ever get tired of reading this because it reminds me that relationships, there is a simple solution to every relationship problem, and people will come up with different problems. Uh, and they, to them, it seems very complicated. But when you boil it all down, it is, uh, what does love say about the solution to this problem? So um, I want to tonight go to the next verse, which is verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another in partisan strife, be careful that you and your whole fellowship are not consumed by one another. So when I was in grade school, I had to memorize this poem. I don't, remember, I don't have it memorized now, but I really thought it was a cute poem. So I'm going to read it to you. And probably some of you will recognize it. It's uh, called The Duel by Eugene Field. But uh, this is the way it goes. The gingham dog and the calico cat, side by side on the table sat. Twas half past twelve, and what do you think? Nor one nor t'other had slept a wink. The old Dutch clock and the Chinese plate appeared to know as sure as fate there was going to be a terrible spat. I wasn't there, I simply state what was told to me by the Chinese plate. The gingham dog went bow wow wow and the calico cat replied meow. The air was littered an hour or so with bits of gingham and calico, while the old Dutch clock in the, in the chimney place up with its hands before it's faced, for it always dreaded a family row. Now mind, I'm only telling you what the old Dutch clock declares is true. The Chinese plate looked very blue and wailed, Oh dear, what shall we do? But the gingham dog and the calico cat wallered this way and tumbled that, employing every tooth and claw in the awfulest way you ever saw. And oh, how the gingham and calico flew. Don't fancy I exaggerate. I got my news from the Chinese plate. Next morning where the two had sat, there they found no trace of dog or cat. And some folks think unto this day that burglars stole that pair away. But the truth about the cat and pup is this. They ate each other up. Now what, you really think, now what do you really think of that? The old Dutch clock, it told me so. And that's how I came to know. So um, this is scriptural. You recognize that, right? But if you bite... And devour one another in partisan strife. Be careful that you and your whole fellowship are not consumed by one another. So strife is very, very destructive. It can be kind of an undercurrent 
or it can be like a F5 tornado that can just devastate everything. And strife is kind of the outgrowth of some of the things that we have been talking about, like uh, unforgiveness, offense, uh, criticism, aggravation. Some of these things that we have talked about individually, we could just kind of say, well, strife is actually the fruit of all this thing. And we've all probably experienced strife. Um, I'll just give you a, a dictionary de definition of strife, even though we know what it is. But, you know, we sometimes we don't. Uh, if it's just an underlying current. Um, if it's outbroken, it's pretty obvious. But it's not always out outbroken. It's sometimes we just carry a spirit of strife on the inside of us. Strife is angry contention, fighting, and contest for advantage or superiority or rivalry. Remember that. Contest for an advantage. A person who has a tendency to create strife is labeled as contentious. That means he or she is apt to dispute, is quarrelsome, is argumentative, disagreeable, combative, and quick to produce conflict. Strife is about the contest for superiority in a relationship. Um, we've probably all run up against some people that we would call argumentative. Um, it's, it, it comes from, I think, what we just talked about, wanting superiority. Our way is right. And, you know, whenever uh, somebody says the sky is blue and you say, well, no, you know, it's kind of gray. Well, <laughs> I mean, that doesn't cause big problems, but that type of thought pattern is what you say, I'm going to look at it and decide, I don't know if you're right or not. So that can bring, bring forth some uh, strife in a relationship. So the wrong heart attitude that's the breeding ground for strife is, surprise, surprise, selfishness. Strife is always selfish. We're always thinking about ourselves when we get in strife. We're trying to defend ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves look good. Or we're wanting something that we can't have and we're striving for it. So, um, and that can be attention. That can be affirmation. can be a lot of things. It can be things in the natural as well. I mean, just physical things as well. So I want to uh, look at James, the fourth chapter, uh, starting in verse 1. Because this asks a question right off the bat. What leads to strife, discord, and feuds? And how do conflicts, quarrels, and fighting originate among you? So we're going to ask that question, and then we're going to answer that question. So James is asking this question. What leads to strife? Let's look at the attitude that leads to strife. And then he begins to tell us what it is. Do they not arise from your sensual desires 
that are ever warring in your bodily members. Now, just stop there for just a minute. What he's saying is, strife is always caused from the flesh part of you. Not the spirit part, but the flesh part of you that wants something and needs something. This is what I would say, a person that is needy. And we can be needy in a lot of areas. And every area that we're needy in is the opportunity for strife. So go on to the next verse. Then we talk, he talks about jealousy. He says, and you are jealous and you covet what others have. And your desires go unfulfilled. And then he says something very, uh, I mean, it's kind of extreme to me. So you become murderers. Well, we don't like to think of ourselves as murderers. But then he go, the Amplified says, to hate is to murder as far as your hearts are concerned. But let me tell you what happens. The murder that we may do is we might murder someone's reputation. And we talked about criticism on Sunday, and, and that's, that's a part of this. So to hate is to murder as far as your heart is concerned. Uh, so we may not ever pull a trigger or slit a throat, but we can damage somebody's reputation through our mouth. And then envy, you burn with en envy and anger. And I'm just going to stop there. Strife always has anger. Have you ever been in strife and not been angry? I don't think I ever have. I mean, I've been around strife and not been angry. And I've had an opportunity to get in strife and I didn't get angry. But when I got involved in, in strife, I became angry. So anger is a part of strife. And are not able, let's just back up. You burn with envy and anger and are not able to obtain the gratification the contentment and the happiness that you seek. And we all do seek happiness and contentment. We feel like it is our right. And actually in the kingdom of God, it is our right. But the way that you get it to fight and war to get it, it does not work right. God does have a way for you to have peace and happiness. We're going to find that out. But not through strife. You do not have because you do not ask. So you don't get God involved. And then he says, oh, or you do ask God for them, but you fail to receive because you ask with wrong purposes, evil, selfish motives. The intention is that when you get what you, that is, when you get what you desire, you're going to spend it on sensual pleasures. Now, God wants us to be happy. God wants us to have pleasures in life, but he is not involved in your lust. And I, I uh, wrote down the meaning of selfish motives. A selfish motive is a strong, passionate desire to fulfill a lust in your own life that you are determined to bring to pass on your own, regardless of the needs or feelings of others. So it's, we would say, it's all about me. And a, word, a word that the Lord gave me many years ago, uh, 
he said this, I never intended for mankind to get their self-esteem, their self-image, or any of their needs met by another human being. And we've all tried. And when they fail to meet our needs, then all sorts of problems arise. Because I can't meet your needs. And you can't meet my needs. The needs that matter in life. You might be able to pay my bill, which is fine, but uh, those deep-seated needs that we have. So God said this, I never intended for mankind to get their self-esteem, their self-image, or any of their needs met by another human being. Everything they need is in me. Strife comes about because you try to get your needs met from a human source. When that supply fails, offense, self-pity, and aggravation are the results. This then produces strife, hurt, resentment, and bitterness, which are the principal ingredients that poison relationships. So, um, Charles Kingsley, I don't know who that is, but he, did, he made a very profound statement, so I wrote it down. If you wish to be miserable, think much about yourself, about what you want, what you like, what respect people ought to pay you, and what people think of you. So he's saying uh, a person that uh, thinks only about themselves and are, mis are, are selfish are miserable. People are miserable. And they try to get somebody else to meet their needs because they're thinking about themselves. So um, I want to look at Proverbs 20, verse 3. We may look at quite a few scriptures tonight because we want to back all this up from the, the Bible. And there is a lot in the Bible about strife. It says, is, it is an honor for a man to cease from strife and keep aloof from it but every fool will quarrel. And so a person that uh, does not cease from strife, according to this, is a fool. So he's not only miserable, but he's a fool. He's a miserable fool, according to the Bible. It's just, just saying. But it says it is an honor for a man to cease from strife. Whenever I think about that, I think of, of uh, what 1 Peter 2.23 says. It says, um, when Jesus was reviled and insulted, he did not revile or offer insult in return. When he was abused and suffered, he made no threat of vengeance, but he trusted himself and everything to him who judges fairly. I, I always look at it this way. He, he trusted his cause into the hands of God. He didn't fight his own battles. He trusted God. Can you put that up in the message Bible? I didn't bring my message, so if, if you can't get it up real quick, we'll skip that. Um, this is the kind of life you've been invited to, the kind of life Christ lived he suffered everything that came his way so you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong. 
not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book, and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. Can you trust God to set things right, or do you have to fight your own battles? That's the question. He suffered, let's see, where did I leave off? Okay, he used his servant, oh, we'll skip that. That's, that's all the further I wanted to go. In the message, it, it goes on and on. It's not by verse, so I never know when to quit. But I just want to go back to the point that I want to make is that Jesus knew how to keep out of strife. He was content to let God set things right. He put his cause into the hands of God and say, said, God, you're the one that's going to bring justice into this situation. So, uh, in Proverbs 23, 20, verse 3, which we just read, it's an honor for a man to cease from strife. I want to look at uh, Abraham in Genesis, the 13th chapter. Now, this is an account of, uh, this is when uh, Abraham and Lot were living, you know, they were living side by side. And because Lot had come along with Abraham, Abram at the time, um, he also obtained flocks and herds and tents. I mean, he had a lot. The, the Bible says in this chapter that Abraham or Abram was extremely rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And then it says, and so was Lot. He had lots of flocks, he had herds. And so there, the land where they lived was not able to nourish all of their flocks. And uh, there became, verse 7 says, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. And so then in verse 8, so Abram, now here is Abram that... Uh, I think everything that Lot had was as a result of Abram's covenant with God. So really, I think uh, Lot owed Abram everything that he had. I mean, he, he, should, she, he should have been really, really grateful to Abram. And Abram had a right to stand up and say, listen, you know, this is mine. Uh, uh, and, you know, to allow that strife to continue however it would work itself out. So in verse 8, this is what Abram did. So Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife, I beg of you, between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are relatives. Abram had his priorities right. Now, this is the way a man of honor or a woman of honor thinks. We're more interested in focusing on the relationship rather than our rights. Focusing on our rights causes us to be a part of strife and it destroys relationships. And Abram just said, you know, the way he settled the, the situation, he said, Lot, you look anywhere around. Wherever you want to go, you go. You have first choice. And whatever's left, I'm going to take it. And you know the story, how Lot looked around and he saw a really good place. I mean, it looked beautiful to the eyes. 
It was called Sodom. And it was well watered. It looked like, woo, I am going to prosper there. And so he took that the best. And he gave Abram the, the rest. And then, interestingly enough, after they separated, the Lord said to Abram in verse 14, after Lot had left him, he said, all right, Lord, the Lord said to Abram, lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your posterity forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can count the dust of the earth, then, then can you, shall your descendants also be counted? And uh, arise, walk through the land, the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. So the result, see the Bible says it's an honor to cease from strife. Well, God honored Abram from ceasing from strife and he blessed Abram. So when you cease from strife, you stand in line to get your blessing from God. And he gave Abram more land than he could ever even have imagined. And we know it didn't turn out too good for Lot. You know, where he thought he was going to really prosper, he wound up losing everything, including his wife. The only thing that he was able to salvage was his two daughters. He and his two daughters, and that didn't work out well, well either. So, I mean, you can read the story. We won't go into that. Uh, so, Abram was an example of someone, of what happens to someone that ceases from strife. So then, there is another person in the Bible that did not cease from strife. And this is recorded in Genesis, the fourth chapter. And this is uh, the account of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's first two sons. And uh, we are pretty sure, the Bible doesn't actually say, but we're pretty sure that God had given them instruction of how to make sacrifices. Uh, because uh, Abel was a sheep herder, and so he brought a blood sacrifice, which was what God required. But Cain was a farmer, and so he just brought vegetables and put on the altar. And because uh, he didn't do it right, there was no blood offered. And that's what sacrifices actually were for, to represent Jesus when he was going to come. And so uh, God had, he accepted Abel's sacrifice. And I don't know how they knew, except if you look in the Bible, uh, a lot of times when God was pleased with a sacrifice, fire would come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice. So that may have been the way that they knew. But God accepted Abel's, but not Cain's. And so the Bible says Cain began to pout. We've never pouted before, right? Okay. And so God spoke, spoke to Cain. And I'm going to read this out of the Message Bible. It's Genesis 4. Uh, six and seven. And God confronted Cain. And he said, why this tantrum? 
Why the sulking? If you don't do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. So this is a warning that God gave, uh, gave Cain about his attitude. And he was trying to point out to Cain, listen, there's something in your life that is not, it is not right, and sin is just waiting for you, and you have the opportunity to master it or not master it. And we know the story that right after that it says that Cain took Abel out into the field and he murdered him. And that reminds me of James 3.16, which says, For wherever there is jealousy and contention, rivalry and selfish ambition, there will also be confusion, unrest, disharmony, rebellion, and all sorts of evil and vile practices. I think probably when Cain went out there with Abel, even though he had jealousy in his heart, he probably wasn't intending to murder him. He just probably wanted to straighten him out. And God had already warned him, you know, you better master this. Well, he didn't master it. And it wound, he wound up murdering someone, and I don't know that he had the intention to do it, but that's what strife will do. It'll cause you, strife will cause you to um, have gravy on the ceiling. Ask me how I know. <laughs> I do remember that vividly. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was while we were going to Ramah. I mean, as holy as we were, uh, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I slammed the spoon into the gravy, and gravy wound up on the ceiling. And I never intended for gravy to be on the ceiling, but there's just every evil work. I did not murder my husband, but uh, I, was, I was frustrated, to say the least. So there is, a, a, and the, the outcome of that, the outcome of Cain's situation was this. God spoke a curse over him. And he operated under a curse for the rest of his life. How serious is strife? If you cease from strife, there's honor, and according to what we see in Abraham's life, there is a blessing. When you don't master strife, then it opens up the door for the curse. Um, I want to look at James 3, starting in verse 14 within the Message Bible. This is uh, uh, an account in James where he's talking about the demonic wisdom, and then he also is talking about God's wisdom. So there is two different kind of wisdoms that you can operate in. Um, It says, mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you're wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning, devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throat. 
That's what demonic wisdom will do. Every evil work. But God's wisdom begins with a holy life. And it's characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessing, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only, only, listen, if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Matthew 5, 9 says, Jesus on the, uh, this was the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, enjoying enviable, enviable happiness, spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their outward conditions. That's the meaning of blessed. Are the makers and maintainers of peace for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, I don't know if I have time to look into all that Solomon had to say about strife, but I will pull out a few scriptures here. You know, um, you're, you're well acquainted with uh, Solomon. He was the wisest man on the earth until Jesus came. Supposedly. I say supposedly because I question his wisdom just a little bit. Uh, because this man that could write all these wise sayings and do all these wise things married 700 wives and had 300 concubines. Is that wisdom? I, I, heard, I, I read an account of a little boy in Sunday school class and he was, tell, he was talking about uh, Solomon. And he said, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? If you get 700 wives and 300 concubines together, they're all porcupines. They're all going to be needling each other. And so I'm thinking, what were you thinking, Solomon? Having all these women. I mean, you get two women after the same guy. And you've got lots of strife going on. But you got a thousand women after the same guy? I mean, that's over the top, strife. And so no wonder he writes so much about strife in the Bible. I'm just going to quickly read some of the things that he said. Proverbs 25, 24. It's better to dwell in the corner of a house stop than to share a house with a disagreeing, quarrelsome, and scolding woman. Now, we could turn that around. It's not just women that are the problem, but to him it was. We know why now. And Proverbs 21, 9. It's better to dwell in a corner of the house top on the flat oriental roof exposed to all kinds of weather than in a house shared with a nagging, quarrelsome, and fault-finding woman. Proverbs 19.13, the contentions of a wife is like a continual dripping of water through a chink in the roof. And then Proverbs 27.15 in the Amplified says, a continual dripping on a day of violent showers and a contentious woman are alike. The Message Bible says a nagging spouse is like the drip, drip, drip of a leaky faucet. That's annoying to say the least. I'm reminded of a, a torture uh, that they used to do to prisoners of war. 
uh, at least I'd read about it, where they position a prisoner underneath a drip of water and it will drip on their heads continually, continually, continually till they either go crazy or talk. It's torture. And so what, what uh, Solomon is saying, it's torturous. It is very torturous to live in strife, whether it is a male or a female. You have your own personal torture chamber if there is a lot of strife in your relationship. So uh, interesting, um, the devil is hiding behind every bad attitude that we have. He's ready to do his dirty work. And there is, I believe, a spirit of strife. I have seen people that have a spirit of strife. They're like a pile of kindling. And all it takes is just a little spark and they blaze up. I don't know if you've met anybody like that. They're not very pleasant to be around. You've got to walk very carefully. You don't want to make any sparks because you could get burned. And so uh, some of you remember Meshach that come over from Kenya uh, years ago. He hasn't been over for several years, but uh, one time when he was over, he gave me this book and I use it. I refer to it a lot. It's called uh, Snatched from Satan's Claw. And uh, it's, it's only, I don't know if it's even in, in print now. I guard it with my life. But it's about a, a sorcerer named Mukunde. And he, along with 140 other sorcerers, had been transported into the spirit realm for a meeting with Satan himself. There he was groomed to perform satanic acts. Satan had given Mukundi eight more years to live and then sent him back to earth to destabilize the church of Jesus Christ in Zaire. His orders were to destroy as many Christians as he could in the time that he had left before his death. And so the devil told him, Satan showed him how he could do it and, and the, the plans that he, he would take back with him. And in the spirit realm... I learned from this book for sorcerers and people in the occult that when they can see into the spirit of a person, they're either clothed or naked. And the ones that are clothed, he said this. Um, you see, I, I've skipped over some, so I want to, because I don't want to take a long time here. But um, he said those that are clothed. Uh, they have the Holy Spirit, and they belong to Jesus. And he said, they are our main target. It is not so easy to possess them. You have to approach them carefully. The goal is to get them completely naked spiritually. And so, and he also said, um, those who are clothed are Christians, and they are, they are not, I repeat, not vulnerable to Satan's attacks. However, those who are naked are at his mercy. And so he goes on to, to lay out the strategies. And he says, basically, he said that, um, that the demonic realm can gain power over people, Christians, when they are driven to anger. And he says there's only two ways that the devil can have access to a Christian's life. And that is through anger and through loose talking. 
They listen to what you have to say. And if you talk negative things, and you start saying negative things about yourself, about your situation, that opens the door. But anger will take the clothes off of you spiritually. And you will be vulnerable to the demonic attacks. And so, um, just, just to um, give you the ending of that story, Makundi actually got born again and uh, got delivered from those demons and he became a mighty evangelist for God. And so he's the one that actually wrote that book. So it, this gives us kind of an in, insight into um, the way the devil thinks and why God hates strife so much and why he talks about anger. And uh, in Ephesians 4, 27 and 28, it says, when angry... Do not sin. Do not ever let your wrath, your ex exasperation, your fury or indignation last until the sun goes down. Leave no such room or foothold for the devil. Give no opportunity to him. You know, some people use this scripture as an excuse to get angry. Well, I can get angry because it's just 10 o'clock in the morning. I have till sundown. But you know, that's, I, don't think that's the, I don't think that's the best way to live. I think that it's best to decide not to get angry. I, uh, I just, I made up my mind years ago. I don't like anger. And I decided I wasn't going to get angry. And I found out you, don't, you can master it. You cannot get angry. You can feel it starting to rise up, but you can stop it. You can stop it. And I don't have time to go into that, but I'm going to quickly, 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 because we're running out of time. I'm going to uh, read. Uh, I have uh, three points of how to practical things that you can do to avoid strife and number one is to keep the tone of your voice soft and polite don't whine or nag or be harsh or critical and there's several verses here that talks about it in proverbs a soft answer turns away wrath grievous uh, words stir up anger a gentle tongue with a healing is a tree of life but willful, willful contrariness in it breaks down the spirit and it has been determined that 90% of friction of daily life is caused by the wrong tone of voice. You can control the tone of your voice. So that's number one. Number two, this is, uh, this is either easy or hard. Keep your mouth shut. You know, there's times that you know that there's getting ready to be strife. And all you have to do is say one more word, and it's going to explode. That would, if you're wise, you would just keep your mouth shut. You know, I, I've, I've learned, I learned that. I felt, you know, I don't like strife. I would rather just not say anything and give my opinion and not give my opinion than to have strife. And so... Um, um, there's several scriptures on that. He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from troubles. Uh, he who guards his mouth keeps his life. But he who opens wide his lips will come to ruin. 
A fool utters all his anger, but a wise man keeps it back and steals it. Uh, we didn't take time to look that up much. But uh, number three is refuse to entertain thoughts that lead to strife. Thoughts, a tiny thought meandering through your mind can cause great damage if you continue to let it fester on the inside of you. I'm reminded of a commercial that I saw. Actually, let me read you a scripture. It goes along with this, and then I'll tell you about the commercial. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is when water tr first trickles from a crack in the dam. Therefore, stop contention before it becomes worse and quarreling breaks out. This commercial I saw was two inspectors walking across the face of a large dam. And they came to this one little place where there was just a little tiny, uh, uh, little tiny hole, just a little tiny squirt of water was coming out of it. And is that, is that my alarm saying I'm done? Uh, anyway, they, this one had a, had a uh, uh, wad of chewing gum, and he just took it out of his mouth, stuffed it in, the, in that hole, and said, there, that ought to fix it. And then he walks on, they walk on, and then we... They pan in and they show that, that gum popping out and the water getting more and more intense. This is the picture of what he's talking about with thoughts. You can start thinking something seems tiny, but you better stop it before it breaks out and it becomes quirling. And uh, I have written this down. It's a proven fact that if you think a thought long enough, it will become a word spoken and then ultimately a deed done. I mean, it's going to come out if you think it, eventually. So um, there's two ways to live. We can live under blessing, we can live under a curse. Now I want to end uh, with a couple of scriptures here. James 3, 17 and 18, this is out of the Amplified. Actually, it's verse 18 is what I want. Righteous, the harvest of righteousness, of conformity to God's will in thought and deed, is the fruit of the seed sown in peace by those who work for and make peace in themselves and in others. That peace, which means concord, agreement, and harmony between individuals with undisturbedness in a peaceful mind free from fears and agitating passions and moral conflicts. Go back to the starting there. Harvest of righteousness. There is a harvest of righteousness when you make peace, when you sow peace. And uh, this is what the harvest is, Isaiah 32, 17. The effect of righteousness will be what? Peace, internal and external. Would you prefer to live in peace? Or, or would you prefer to live in confusion and all sorts of evil and vile practices, disharmony, unrest, and rebellion? The effect of righteousness is peace, internal and external, and the result of righteousness will be quietness and confident trust forever. That's the way God wants us to live. That's what makes for a healthy relationship. So we have to strive for it. Mark eleven twenty five. Can you put that up there real quick in the Amplified? 
So this is when Jesus said, Jesus said, when you stand praying, if, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So let's let it drop, leave it, and let it go. Let's just go over that one more time. Forgive him, let it drop, leave it, and let it go. Let's not get, let's be men and women of honor. Where we refuse to get involved with strife and recognize what it really is. And I know uh, Pastor and I had a, we had a practice that we, that we uh, uh, did a lot. I say a lot when, we, when strife started to arise. And, and, you know, we butted heads a lot early on, but we got, we learned, we learned. That's, that's what it's all about in relationships, is learning how to be healthy in a relationship. But when we recognize that, hey, there is a spirit of strife here working, we would catch each other's hand and we'd say, let's pray. And we'd stop and we'd say, in the name of Jesus, you spirit of strife, I address you in Jesus' name and I command you to leave. You have no place here. And I honestly could... Many times I could just feel that spirit of strife leaving because it is a spirit. It is a tool of the enemy. It has been our honor to offer this message today. If you would like to partner with us as we continue to bring the Word of God, we would ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Victory Center with a financial donation. You may do so today via the online giving portal at victorycenter.org. Thank you.